Our sermon text today comes from Acts 11. We'll be looking at verses 19 through 30. Uh, Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the snapshot of a ministry blessed by God. And we believe we have a lot to learn from such a picture about how we do ministry here today. Because although our ministry today may look different in some ways, there are aspects of the ministry of the early church that should be reflected in the ministry of the church in every age. So far, we've looked at the content and extent of the ministry of the early church. We've also seen the fruit of their ministry and how that fruit was examined by Barnabas. Today, we're going to see the cultivation of their ministry, as well as the validation of their ministry. But now before we hear the reading and the preaching of God's word, let's ask for God's blessing upon them. Our prayer for illumination this morning was written by King David centuries ago and is recorded in Psalm 25, verses 4 through 5. Let's pray together. Make us to know your ways, O Lord. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us. For you are the God of our salvation. For you we wait all day long. Amen. Acts 11, verses 19 through 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, y'all come up and join me. Welcome, everybody. So, when a farmer is growing a garden, he needs more than one tool, doesn't he? Don't you think? Well, what if you were a farmer? Imagine that. Can you imagine trying to dig a hole with a rake? How, how would that go? You think? Would that be okay? No, no, it would be a little challenging. Or what about a sledgehammer? Now, a sledgehammer is great for driving in fence posts, right? Driving things down into the ground. But what if you had to use this to dig up your potatoes? I think they'd be mashed potatoes. 
even before they got out of the ground. Yeah, well, so the, a farmer needs more than one tool. Of course, a farmer needs seeds and water and sun to grow things, to grow their garden. But, but they do need more than one tool to help take care of their crops. Each tool is, uh, is helpful in different ways. And so each tool, when used by the farmer in the right way at the right time, he helps the garden to grow and to produce good fruit. Well, there's something kind of like that in what we just read. You know that God's word, that the good news about Jesus, God's word is like the seed that the farmer uses, that the farmer spreads. And, and when it takes root in a person's heart, then a new Christian begins to grow. But that growth needs tending, like a farmer taking care of a garden. He's got to pull some weeds. He's got to help prune back branches. And in a way, Jesus uses Barnabas in the story like a farmer using a tool. He's helping the church in Antioch grow big and healthy. And that's what we heard in verse 24. It says, Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And you guys, with all that growth in the garden of God's church, we might think that Barnabas was all that the church there needed. But like a good farmer, Jesus knows that using different tools are necessary to take care of his little plants as they grow. And so while God's word is growing in people's hearts and lots of people are becoming Christians, Barnabas does something surprising. He leaves. He travels about 150 miles to go looking for Saul. Because Saul had different gifts and different abilities than Barnabas had. And Jesus had special work for Saul that Barnabas couldn't do. And so Barnabas goes and finds Saul and brings him back so that they can work together for a whole year in God's little garden in Antioch, making God's garden there more fruitful and beautiful. Well, guys, for you and me today, if we're going to grow, then we have to stay close to God's word because there's no other seed that produces good fruit. But what it takes care of uh, when it comes to taking care of God, God's growing garden here at Trinity, Jesus still uses different people with different gifts and uses them together. Like here at Trinity, you have 15, 15 elders that Jesus is using to help this church know God's word and so remain healthy and growing. We are as different from each other as a rake from a sledgehammer. But that's actually a good thing. And because Jesus is using us each to help take care of his church, that's another reason why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right. Thanks, guys. You can go back. If you've not already done so, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 11, to this passage we have been looking at for the last uh, several weeks. This snapshot of uh, the church in Antioch, of this, this ministry of the word there, blessed by God. As we've seen over the course of the last several weeks, uh, the hand of the Lord was with those uh, who scattered beyond the borders of, of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria into the outermost parts of the earth. They're, they're beginning to go here, we see, to Phoenicia and Cyprus and, and Antioch, and they are taking the word with them. And because they are preaching, the word, uh, 
uh, we are told that many believed and turned to the Lord. And of course, as Sam was saying, we've, we've already looked at several aspects of their ministry because we believe that it has a lot to teach us about the way that we ought to be doing ministry today here in Cleveland. Uh, We've looked at the content and extent of their ministry, that they were preaching the word to everyone. We've looked at the the fruit and the examination of that ministry, that their lives were were transformed by faith and then examined in the light of that gospel. And this morning, we're going to be looking at how this ministry continued to be cultivated. How was this ministry tended once it had taken root and, and begun to grow? And not only will we see how this ministry was cultivated, but we will see how it was authenticated by their response to the prophecy of Agabus. So let's let's begin just with the cultivation of this ministry. Again, Luke tells us that when Barnabas arrived in Antioch, when when he was sent by the church in Jerusalem to Antioch to to see this new work of the gospel, we're, we're told that when he arrived, he saw the grace of God. He saw the grace of God at work in this new church, and he rejoiced. He was glad. But having seen the the work of God's grace in Antioch, he didn't then pack up and go home. He, He didn't leave well enough alone. He didn't assume that having begun, everything that needed to be done had already been done. But rather, seeing the grace of God, seeing that that they had been rooted in the gospel, seeing that they had believed the gospel, seeing that their lives had been transformed by that gospel, he then exhorted them to remain faithful. He exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with, with steadfast purpose. And that, that exhortation, it might have included some teaching, but when we use the language of exhortation, we, we seem to be focusing on the idea of encouragement. He was encouraging them to continue to walk in the truths that they had received, to, to live like they believed what they actually confessed that they believed. I don't know about you, but, but in my experience, that really is the fundamental struggle of the Christian life, is it not? Living like we believe what we say we believe. Living out of our professed faith. We, we need exhortation. We, we need a, a, a community around us that will encourage us and that will strengthen us to actually live out our faith in the course of our daily lives. And that's exactly what, what Barnabas is doing here. He is exhorting the church to continue living out their faith, to remain faithful to the Lord in whom they had believed and to whom they had turned. And we're told that that with his encouragement and with his exhortation, the church continued to grow. We were already told that a great many had turned to the Lord, and now we're told in verse 25 that a great many were added. The church continues to grow with Barnabas' exhortation and encouragement. But notice, even though he was experiencing this success, in fact, the way Luke puts it, it's actually because he was experiencing this success, he goes to Tarsus to find Paul. 
he, he travels away from Antioch to go find Paul. Remember, Paul had been converted. We, we heard his, his, conver- his conversion story back in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus as he was traveling there to, to actually arrest Christians and to drag them back to Jerusalem in chains. The Lord met him on the road and knocked him off his horse and, and said, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? And through that encounter with the risen Christ, Paul had been converted, but, but, through his, but after coming to Jerusalem to meet the apostles, his life had been threatened and he had gone back to his hometown to, to learn more and to, to minister. But now Barnabas goes and finds him so that he can bring him to Antioch. He says, in fact, it's because he was experiencing such success that he knew that he needed him. He says, many were added, so Barnabas went. Many were added, so Barnabas went. Because the church was growing, because uh, many were being added to the church, Barnabas knew that he needed help, and he goes to Tarsus to find Saul. And I think we need to ask ourselves what it is that we learn from this about the nature of ministry today. And I, I think there are several things in this, in this brief picture of, of Barnabas going to get Saul that we learn about the cultivation of the church. The first thing we, we learn is the importance of, of exhortation and ongoing teaching. Because we, we see that here. As I, as I said, when, when Barnabas comes to Antioch, When he comes to to Antioch and sees the grace of God, he does not assume that, well, everything that was necessary has already been done. He doesn't assume that that having begun well, they they have everything they need, but he he continues to exhort them. But as they grow, and as as more and more are added, he, he begins to realize that more than just exhortation is necessary, there's also a need for an ongoing teaching ministry. And that's why he goes to get Paul. Notice it's when Paul comes that we're told that for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. They, they continue to, to expound upon the word. The, the gospel of, of Jesus Christ is in some ways very simple. And yet it is in other ways profoundly deep. It was Calvin who is said to have described the gospel of Jesus Christ as a puddle that a child can play in and yet a pool that an elephant can swim in. And so having learned the gospel, having having received the truths about Jesus Christ, we continue to explore those truths. We, we continue to, to dive deeper into those truths with, with exhortation to remain faithful to what we know and teaching to go deeper and to learn more of the wonders and the, the glories of, of Christ. You see, in our finite minds, we will never fully comprehend the, the wonder of, of who God is and who he is for us in, in Christ. And so there is always something for us to learn. In fact, I'm convinced that this will will go on even in the new heavens and the new earth. Sometimes we think, well, when I get to heaven, I'll know that. But I think we will actually continue to know. We will continue to go deeper. We will continue to see new vistas of the glory of God and the wonder of who he is, even into all eternity. Because he is, as we confessed even this morning, the infinite, eternal, unchanging God. And we will forever be his finite creatures dipping our toes into the ocean of his glory. And that's what we we see here. The the church needs not only exhortation, it needs that. It needs encouragement to to live out what it knows. But it also needs teaching that it can continue to go deeper into what God has revealed. 
But not only do we see here the, the importance of, of exhortation and ongoing teaching, we, we also see, I think, the importance of, of partnership in gospel ministry. When, when Barnabas is, is having success there in the church in Antioch, it's because he is having success that he knows he needs help. It's because many are being added that he, that he goes and gets Paul. And again, that, that, it, that teaches us something significant. It teaches us that, that gospel ministry is not the place to claim market share. It is not the place to, to build your brand. You know, that, that's the way that our modern economy works. People, people want to build their brand. They want to claim their, their market share. They want to protect their niche. Whatever it is, whatever it is they are, they are doing. And there is no place for such a mindset in the ministry of the gospel. There's no place for for protecting our market share. That's not the way that gospel ministry works, but rather we are all servants of the same king. We we work together side by side for his purposes and for the glory of his name. Gospel ministry is a place to work together as servants of the king for the good of his kingdom. It's it's exactly what what Barnabas does here when he goes to to get Paul. He's not protecting his ministry. He's not saying, well, well, Antioch, this is my market. I'm going to make a name for myself here. I'm going to show how how good I am at this ministry by by building a a church bigger than the one in Jerusalem. That's not Barnabas' mindset at all, but rather he goes to to get help so that that the believers there in Antioch can be nurtured and and cultivated to to grow up into mature disciples of Jesus Christ. It's what Barnabas is doing, and it's what we will actually see Paul do throughout his ministry. Throughout Paul's ministry, both here in Acts as as he begins to take center stage in Luke's narrative and, and then also in his epistles, what will we see again and again and again? We will see Paul of all people. If ever there was was a, a pastor who had a right to claim market share, if ever there was a, a pastor who had a right to build his brand, it would have been the Apostle Paul. And yet what does he do again and again and again? He brings along partners. He brings along Silas, he brings uh, along Timothy, he brings along uh, Titus, and and countless others who are are named in his epistles, who who accompany him in ministry, to whom he entrusts important work, whom he leaves at these various churches and says, you put things in order here, you establish elders there, you build up this church. And not only does does he do this, not only does he bring in partners, but he encourages his partners to bring in partners He instructs Timothy explicitly to to train men who can train men who can train men. Gospel ministry is a ministry of partnership. It's what we we see here in this story. But we see that in that partnership, the third thing we see here is that in that partnership, gifting and calling matter. Gifting and calling need to be honored. Now we know We know that Paul was called to be God's chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles. How do we know that? Well, because we were told it explicitly, again, at at Paul's uh, conversion there, recorded for us in Acts chapter 9. 
Remember, when, 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 God call, when God calls Paul to himself, he tells him, you will take the gospel before the nations. You are my chosen instrument for that task. Paul was, was called by God to be, the, to be the ambassador of the gospel to the uncircumcised. That's why Barnabas goes and gets him here, at least in part. At least in part, it's why Paul, it's why Barnabas seeks him out, because here for the first time, the, the church is expanding beyond the borders of, of Judea and Samaria into the Gentile regions, and, and this is exactly the work that Paul has been called to. And so Barnabas goes to, to get him. He, he honors his calling as one who has been called to take the gospel to the Gentiles, but, but also he recognizes that, that Paul is gifted. This is more implied than than stated, but again, we we see it in the fact that Paul will consistently be the chief speaker. So much so that when Paul and Barnabas end up in in Lystra, they they refer to Barnabas as Zeus and uh, and Paul as Hermes because he's the one who talks the most. He's the the teacher. Barnabas is a great encourager. It's actually what his name means. He is the son of encouragement. He is the one who exhorts. He is the one who encourages. He is the one who comes alongside and and gives strength to keep going. Paul is the the teacher. He is the expounder of these mysteries. And together they are able to minister to this church in Antioch because they recognize both their calling and their gifting. It's what Barnabas is is doing here when he he recruits Paul to work alongside him. And and each of these facets of of, of cultivating ministry is important to us today. Again, in our ministry today, we must continue to prioritize both encouragement, exhortation, and teaching. We need people in the congregation who who can come alongside those who are struggling, come alongside those whose whose, uh, uh, strength is is flagging and can encourage them. They they may not be the ones who are going to to teach the class on the Trinity, but they are the ones who are going to encourage you to walk in a way that brings glory to to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They are are good at encouragement, and and we also need to prioritize teaching. Uh, We need to prioritize those who will continue to expound upon the truth. It's not enough to have begun well. When I look at Trinity, just like Barnabas and Antioch, I see the grace of God, and I am glad. It is a beautiful thing to see God's Spirit at work amongst His people. And we must continue to teach and to exhort so that we might cultivate this ministry, so that we might continue to bring forth fruit to the praise of his name. Teaching and and exhortation must be at the heart of what we do. As I I said a few weeks ago, this doesn't mean that everything we do has to be a a Bible study. (laughs) There are times for fellowship. There there are times to to just get together and, and, and share a meal. But even those times, the sharing of our lives together... They create the context within which the ministry of the word can take place and can bring forth fruit. As a church, our priority is to be ministering and exhorting the word that it might bring forth a harvest of righteousness in our lives to the praise of his glory. Teaching and exhortation must be at the heart of everything we do as a church, as a a congregation of Christ's church. And in that work, in that work of teaching and exhortation, we must value partnership. 
We must value the, the reality that this work is done by, by many people working together, not competing with one another. We must value partnership. And as Sam was saying, we, one of the ways that we do that here at Trinity is by having a plurality of elders, by having many people responsible for shepherding the flock, many people responsible for, for teaching and, and, and exhorting. And of course, it's not only the elders who, who exhort and, and teach. You exhort and teach one another. They are the leaders in this. But, but every member of the church has the opportunity to speak the truth in love to, to the people next to them in the pews, to the people they meet at the, in the hallways, to the people they, they sit with at the fellowship table. We all have, have this ability to, to work together, to work together to, to build up the church to the praise of the Savior's name. And so we must value partnership rather than, than seeking to, to, to protect our niche or to, to make a name for ourselves. We must work together to see his name glorified. And in doing that, again, we must honor gifting and calling. We must honor gifting and calling. Everyone has the, the ability to speak the truth in love uh, to their brothers and sisters in, in Christ. But there are some who have been gifted to that and who have been called to that. It's the, the elders that we have here at the church. They have been called to be shepherds in Christ's church. They have been called to be ministers of the word in Christ's church. And we go through a process of nomination and, and training and then, and then election because we want to make sure that, that we are uh, identifying the people whom God has called and gifted for this work. But again, it's the, it's the way that Christ's church works. We, we look for men like Barnabas, good men, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith, whom God has, has called to serve his church in this way. And when we do this, when we prioritize uh, teaching and, and uh, exhortation, when we, when we value partnership, and when we honor the gifting and the calling that God has placed upon people in his congregation, we are cultivating the fruit of Christ's church in the way that has been modeled for us here by, by Paul and, and Barnabas in Antioch. And we can trust that when we do God's work in God's way, he will give the blessing. Sometimes that's numeric growth. Sometimes that's, that's spiritual growth. But we can trust that God will keep his promise through Christ to build his church by his spirit when we seek to serve him in the way that, that he has set forth for us in his word. That's what this text is all about. It's, it's why we've taken the time to, to go through it because here again and again and again we see aspects of ministry that need to be duplicated in our own ministry today. We see the way that they are, are engaged in the ministry of the Word, and we want that to be reflected in the way we are engaged in the ministry of the Word today. But it's at this point that, that Luke adds this, this story. It in some ways seems out of place. All of a sudden, Luke, is, is, he's been describing the, the church in Antioch, and then all of a sudden he is, he's talking about Agabus. Agabus, the, the prophet from 
Jerusalem. So let's look at that story again and see how it serves to, to validate everything that has taken place in Antioch up to this point. Look again at verses 27 through 30. As I said, this, this story fits here sort of from a purely historical perspective because Agabus is in Antioch. Look again at the very beginning. It says, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem. So just as Barnabas had come from Jerusalem, so often these other prophets had come down from uh, Jerusalem. But, but I think Paul, uh, Luke is telling us this story for more than mere historical reasons. He's telling us this story because he says this is the fruit of the ministry that was going on in Antioch. This is how that ministry was, was, was validated. This is how it was authenticated. This is how we know that this was a true church of Christ. Now we're familiar, I think, with Old Testament prophets. We're, we're familiar with, with Isaiah. We're familiar with, with Jeremiah, Hosea, and, and Joel, and Amos. We, we know some of those names, and we, we know the role that they played in the Old Testament. We know that they spoke the, the very word of God to the people of God in the Old Testament. But we're, we're less familiar with New Testament prophets. In the New Testament, the, the focus tends to be on uh, apostles. But you need to remember that the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that in that first generation there were prophets in the church. And, and Paul tells us that together with the apostles, those prophets were the foundation upon which the church was built. You see, when, when Paul speaks of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ being the cornerstone, the fact that he mentions prophets second, most scholars believe that that means he's referring there not to the Old Testament prophets, but to the New Testament prophets that were active in the church. And so we need to remind ourselves of, of what is, uh, what are, what's the difference and what's the similarity between these apostles and these prophets. And so remember, an apostle, an apostle is one who had been sent by Jesus himself, one who had been authorized by Jesus himself, the resurrected Lord, to speak with Jesus' authority to the church. They, they went as eyewitnesses to the resurrection to speak with Jesus' own authority. Prophets were not apostles in that sense. They had not been uh, commissioned by Christ himself. However, they were prophets. They were speaking the very word of God with God's authority to his people. Sometimes people today will, will suggest that the New Testament prophets were categorically different than the Old Testament prophets. But if they were, I don't think they'd be included in the foundation of the church. These are prophets and throughout all of Scripture, prophets are those who speak the very words of God with God's authority to God's people. That's what's going on here. And often those prophets would foretell future events. It wasn't the only thing they do. Uh, your prophets aren't always just going around telling the, the future. They're not fortune tellers, uh, but they are speaking God's word. And sometimes God, God's word includes warnings about what's to come. And here, the, the warning is about this famine. It's the, it's the prophecy that Agabus makes. Agabus, this, this prophet, by the Spirit, we're told, Agabus, the, the prophet, by the Spirit, tells of a, a famine that would impact the, the whole world, the, the, the entire Roman Empire. And Luke tells us that this actually happened, and that's, that's significant. Remember, the, the test of a prophet is do his words come true. And so Agabus here is demonstrated to be a, a true prophet because he, he speaks in the power of the Spirit and his words actually come true. But, but this isn't a passage about the fulfillment of prophecy. Rather, it's the response of the church to that prophecy that Luke really wants us to see. And so look again at, at what we, we see here. In verse 29, we're told that when the church hears Agabus' prophecy, 
What do they do? When the church hears of this, this coming famine, they determine to send relief to the church in Judea. And they do so. They don't just decide to do it. They actually follow through. They, they do it. They send relief to the elders in Jerusalem by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And again, I think there are several things for us to, to notice here as we, as we try to un, unpack this. And again, the first is simply that the, the disciples determined to send relief. They, they, they made the decision themselves. They, they considered what God had revealed and they, they asked themselves, what's the appropriate response? How ought we to respond as, as disciples of Jesus Christ to the distress of our brothers and sisters in Judea? They're not compelled, they're not forced, but they, they consider God's revelation and they, they determine that it is good for them to respond with mercy. It is good for them to respond by sending relief to the church in Judea. This is evidence of their newly transformed lives. These are people who have been born again. These, these people who have, been, who have been filled with love for, for the king and for his people and for his kingdom. And that love is now overflowing in action. It's overflowing in a response to this crisis by sending relief to the church in Judea. And notice, not only do they determine to do it, but each one gives according to his own ability. Some give more, some give less. Not, not everyone has the same resources. There's not some amount of money that says, well, you've got to give this much to qualify. No, it's, it's out of the, the resources that God has entrusted to you. How can you steward those resources for the good of the king and for the good of his people? And so they, they, they determine themselves that they are going to respond with, with relief and that each one gives according to his ability, according to what has been entrusted to him to, to respond to the needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's the third thing that we need to notice here. They are responding to the needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not just sending relief to, to hurting people on the other side of, of the Mediterranean. There's something right about that. There's something good about that, about, about simply responding to, to need with, with the desire to, to send relief. Especially in our day, we have access to, to suffering all over the planet. And there are any number of organizations that will, that will try to move you to give by, by showing the suffering of, of people elsewhere in the world. And, and there's, there's something right and there's something good about that. There's something right about about just simply responding to human suffering with, with mercy and grace. But there's something more going on here. This is not just a response to, to human need generally. This is a response to the suffering of their brothers and sisters in Christ. It is to their brothers and sisters that they are sending release, relief. And I want, you to, I want you to see that this response of the church in Antioch it mirrors almost exactly the response of the church in Jerusalem to the needs in its own midst. Remember what we saw back in chapter 2 and again in chapter 4. When the church was first taking root in Jerusalem, how did the, uh, the disciples respond? When there was need among them, they determined to give each according to their ability, so that, so that those in need received what they needed, so that their brothers and sisters in Christ were, were cared for. What we see here is the validation that, that this is an extension of the church in Jerusalem. This is, this is now the, the church in Jerusalem extending to the ends of the earth. This is not a new thing, but rather this is the fruit of the same gospel. This is an extension of the one church, of the one Savior. The, 
The church had spread geographically. It had even spread culturally. Remember, these are, these are not Jewish Christians, but these are Gentile Christians in Antioch. And yet, they are still loving one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. There is still but one church. It's spreading. It's going to the ends of the earth. But there is still but one church. And that expression of love is a beautiful validation, a, a beautiful authentication that this is Christ's church. Here is a church established and built up by the ministry of the word. Here is, is a church whose, whose members' lives have been transformed by faith. Here is a church who recognize that they are one with all who are in Christ because Christ is one. That's what's going on here. That's what we, we see here. That's why Luke wants us to, to see this story. And it, and it compels us to ask, how then might our union and communion with Christ's one church be expressed today? What validates our ministry today? What, what shows us to be members of, of Christ's one church? And again, there, there's not one answer to that question. Something like relief, like the relief we see here, is, is, of course, one expression of that unity, one expression of that communion. We, we, we've seen it in recent days when, when uh, the, the churches here in the United States re responded to, to come alongside and to come to the aid of, of Christians in the Ukraine when, when, the, when Russia invaded. Or, or we saw it in Afghanistan when our military pulled out and the, the Taliban took over and, and we needed to respond with, with help for Christians in uh, distress. You heard Isaac this morning praying uh, about uh, the, the persecuted church uh, uh, around the world. And he, and he learns those things through organizations like Open Doors and, and Voice of the Martyrs. He knows what's going on and he's able to, to pray and to, to respond as necessary. And all of those are, are expressions of our union and our communion in Christ. And of course we can do the same thing even here in Cleveland. When there was a tornado a few years ago, churches all around responded to the needs of, of members of other churches. They, they just came to help. And yes, they helped other members of the community as well, but there was an expression of, of, of brotherhood, of, of, of family. As members of different churches made their needs known and other churches with other resources responded. It was an expression of the fact that we are together. That we are members of, of one church. But of course, it's not just relief. There's also just the, the supporting of ongoing ministry. Again, we, we talked about missionaries a few weeks ago. When we, we, we support missionaries who take the gospel, we, we support the training of indigenous ministers. These are all good things. As we support ministry in other parts of, of the world, we express our, our unity. But I want to suggest to you that, that beyond just the giving of funds, whether for relief or for development... One way that, that we can, can celebrate and, and express our unity and our community in Christ is simply by the mutual honor and respect that we show for one another, that we show for our brothers and our sisters in Christ, especially those who are members of different congregations. At one point I heard there were something like 300 churches in Bradley County of, of how, who knows how many different denominations. And it's appropriate for us to, to talk about our differences. It's, it's appropriate for us to, to wrestle with the, the different views of gifts or the different views of, of baptism or the different views of, of church structure. It's, it's appropriate to talk about those things. But I want you to hear me say that we ought to emphasize our commonality over our differences. 
We ought, to, we ought to recognize that, that, yes, while we disagree here, we disagree there, what we have in common is Christ. We have believed the same gospel. We, we rest in the same Lord. And we are seeking to, to expand the same kingdom. We have all been born of the same seed. We've all been nurtured by the same spiritual milk. And we all work in the power of the same Spirit. The church is not ours, it is Christ's. And we ought to honor all who belong to him as our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we separate from our brothers and sisters in Christ over cultural or or methodological or even secondary theological issues, we suggest that the church is more ours than his. We suggest that, that our market niche is more important than the glory of his name. It doesn't mean that we can't have separate congregations. Again, we, we talked about that a few weeks ago. There's a place for Presbyterian and Methodist and, 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 and Baptist churches There's, that actually serves Christ's church in this present age. But we must not allow our differences to eclipse our union. Our union in Christ is essential. In him, we are members of one body. In him, we are citizens of one kingdom. In him, we are children of one father. And that is beautiful and good. And it is because we have been members of, made members of his church through the ministry of his word by his spirit and not merely members of our own self-established institution. It's because we're members of his church that we call this good news. Do you believe that? Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for this picture of the church. We thank you for uh, this picture of the church expanding, Father, beyond Jerusalem, beyond even Judea and Samaria, into the outermost parts of the earth, Father. Uh, We thank you that that you show us that the, the church is for all people, And we thank you, Father, that you also show us that there is but one church, that we are united in Christ, that we are brothers and sisters together with him, of you, our heavenly Father. Father God, we we thank you for this picture of the church, and we pray that you would allow it to, to shape the way we do ministry today, that we might do ministry in a way that brings praise and glory to your name and eternal good to your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.